0: Well, that's an atheist. How much do you have to hate someone if you really believe in hell? How much do you have to hate someone to not warn them? And when I heard him ask that question years ago, it's haunted me, not consistently, but it keeps coming back to me. I just, I can't get away from it. How much do you have to hate someone to not try to tell them about hell? And then this week I was listening to an old song that uh, I didn't realize it's it's 36 years old now, but uh, Steve Green actually came and sang this song in our church, and uh, maybe you can hear it. How many of you remember that song? 36 years ago, and yet that line, when are we going to realize that we must give our lives? We all know what the calling of the church is, don't we? Or do we? You know, there are a lot of different organizations that can provide food for hungry school children by by filling backpacks or manage a community garden to feed lower-income families. Those are good things for us to do. I'm glad we do them, but that's not what makes us a church. In fact, nothing we do, not one event on our calendar makes us a church, except what we do in regard to what I'm preaching about this morning. Being saved is meaningless if you don't believe what the message is about today. Nothing we do or talk about is ever as important. It's the sole reason why any of you pastors have a calling on your lives. It's the only reason you were called into ministry. William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, had this to say a hundred or so years ago. The chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, Forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, heaven without hell. Suppose I was a fireman and you ran up to me in a panic and screamed that your house was on fire, and I said back to you, oh, don't worry about it, it'll burn out. Or suppose I was a policeman and was passing by your house and you yelled at me as I was passing by that there were some young thugs trying to break into your back door and I replied, oh, don't worry about it, boys will be boys. Or suppose I was a physician and some lab report came back that indicated you might have cancer and frightened you asked me what you should do and I said, hey, everybody gets sick. You would rightly conclude that I don't take my job very seriously, Right? And I would wonder aloud this morning why more in the church today aren't taking the scriptures I will refer to today more seriously. Now, preachers love to talk about the glory of heaven. That it's not a matter of just sitting on fluffy clouds forever playing a harp. No, in heaven... There will be pulsating life beyond what you ever thought life could be. God will make sure you don't miss anything by removing night or your need to sleep. It will be 24 hours forever discovering the inexhaustible truths and beauties of God. in His newly created heaven and earth. Talking about heaven is exciting. It's invigorating. It's stimulating to consider the glory that awaits those who die in Jesus Christ. But I would be a failure as a minister of the gospel, just like that sorry fireman, policeman, or physician that I mentioned at the beginning of the message, if I did not tell you the rest of the story. I wouldn't be taking seriously my call to represent God's word to you. You see, when you and I leave this world, that is when we die, we do not stop existing. We merely change the state of our existence. Because the fact is, when God created you, he gave you an eternal soul. So while this body will be laid in the grave, my soul will live on because God made it eternal. Therefore, who you really are, your essence, cannot cease to exist, even if you want it to. Kill the body, yes, but who you are is your soul, and it will go on. And when this earthly life dies, there are only two options. There's the option that we all love to talk about, the heavenly option. But there is the other option, the one we don't want to talk about, preach about, or even think about. You see, if not heaven, then it's going to be hell. Now, it's ignored as much as it can be ignored today. The modern church is pretty much silent about it. And we've come up with alternatives to it, like universalism, which says in the end, we're all going to be saved. God's just going to yell, Ollie Ollie, oxen free, and everybody gets to come home. And there's annihilationism, where God will somehow annihilate what He created to be eternal. And there's purgatory, this in-between state, some place between death and eternity, where after death you can make amends for all your sins and still get to heaven for the rest of eternity. None of those are biblical. They are the mental concoctions of human denial. They are attempts to soften the impact of what you read in your Bible about a place called hell. My intent this morning is not to soften the impact. Rather, my intent is to explain the truth. For those of you who are believers, you'll receive this message and likely be inspired to take some action. For those of you here today who are not believers, hopefully it will frighten you off the path that leads to hell. Should we be talking about the concept of hell more seriously in the 21st century? Listen, the existence of hell is why we exist as a church. Again, helping unwed mothers, organizing youth activities, holding worship services, those are all noble and important, but everything is secondary to to the divine edict we have to try to save souls from eternity. Now, I think maybe we've lost the whole concept of eternity. I came across, uh, came across this, which I think explains it very well. If all the earth and sea were sand, and every thousand years a bird should come and take away one grain of sand, it would take an incredibly long time before that vast heap of sand was emptied. Yet, if after all that time the damned may come out of hell, there would be hope. But the Bible says hell is forever forever. So my question to you is, do we really believe what Jesus said about hell in the Bible? Do you really believe that there is a place of eternal damnation called hell? Now, there's some reason why I'm a believer. The first reason I believe that hell exists is because Jesus said it does. Nobody has a problem believing in heaven because Jesus said there's a heaven Oh, he says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We love that verse in John chapter 14. We love all those verses about heaven. And we take Jesus at his word. But in Mark chapter 9, it's the very same Jesus talking. And he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better For them, if a large millstone were hung around their neck, and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. That's the same Jesus who gets so excited about an eternity in heaven, but he clearly talks about an alternate reality called hell. So if you can't trust him on this, Why can you trust him on this? We don't get to pick the pieces of Jesus that we like and walk away from what we don't like. Uh, I had another quotation I saw. It said, It's remarkable to think that none of all the inspired preachers in history of whom we have any record ever uttered such horrible words about the destiny of the lost as our Lord Jesus, meek and mild Lamb of God. The fact is, Jesus said way more about hell than he did heaven. Jesus makes it clear that in hell, Mark chapter 9, hell is to be avoided at all costs, even at radical cost. Better to have one eye or one foot or one hand in this life than to have two eyes, two feet, two hands and go to hell. Better to be severely limited in this life than miss the next life, is what he's saying. And Jesus wasn't saying this to have a soundbite for his crowd to take away with him that day. He really was saying, at any cost, you have to avoid hell. What does a profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Hell. Now, the Greek word is Gehenna, which means the Valley of Hinnom. Now, let me tell you about that valley. It was the garbage dump outside the city of Jerusalem, It was a place of avoidance. You didn't want to go there. The stench was unbelievable. It's why we put our garbage out of the curb so someone will come and take it away and we don't have to deal with it. All of Jerusalem's garbage was taken to Gehenna and thrown into this valley of Hinnom where there was always a fire burning. And this garbage burning fire would never go out. It was unquenchable because people in the city just kept throwing more and more garbage into it. And Jesus describes hell as this garbage dump for rebellious souls that is in a constant state of burning fire that will never go out. And referring to hell, Jesus says in verse 44... It's a place where the worm does not die. In verse 46, he says it again, where the worm does not die. In verse 48, he says it again, where the worm does not die. Now, did you notice I just misquoted all three of those verses? I said where the worm does not die, but what it really says is where their worm does not die. Not plural, not worms. No, it's singular. It's it's personal. It's their worm. Now, remember, he's talking about Gehenna, and here's the deal. Oftentimes, the bodies of criminals, evil people, were cast outside the city of Jerusalem into this valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, where they would rot. And obviously, if there's a body rotting, it's going to attract maggots, the larva of flies. And the maggots eat on the dead flesh. When you and I die, the same thing will happen to us. Maggots will gnaw at our spiritual corpse. And the Greek word for worm is the same as the word for maggot. Jesus says in hell, in the valley of Hinnom in Gehenna, your worm does not die in a fire that is not quenched. And Jesus is referring all the way back to the Old Testament where the prophet Isaiah had this to say, and they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die. Now now let's try to understand... What does Jesus mean when he makes these worm and fire references? He's saying it will be an abhorrence to all mankind. In other words, if you looked into Gehenna and you saw a corpse eaten up by worms, you'd be repulsed, wouldn't you? It'd be abhorrent. It would it would make you sick to look at it. And Jesus is saying your worm eating you makes you an abhorrence, more plainly, the torment of hell, will be you getting to live with yourself at your worst, most rotten. You hating yourself. You being repulsed by yourself. Choosing sin over Christ is choosing to live with your sinful self like a worm eating dead flesh. You become an abhorrence to yourself and to everybody else. Now David helps us with that understanding. He tries to in Psalm 22 where he says, I'm a worm, not a man to scorn, that I'm scorned by everyone, despised by all the people. The prophet Daniel said, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. In hell, you, a sinful man or woman, will see another sinful man or woman, or woman, and you will make each other sick. You at your worst, and so are they. Why? Because everything of God is absent from hell. Now, you right now, if you committed some atrocious sin last night, you are still not at your worst, because there are still parts of you that will try to do some things well. Sometimes you're mad, sometimes you're glad, but you're not at your worst. But in the torment of hell, it'll be you and everybody else living with each other eternally at your worst all the time. Their worm does not die. The reprehensible, raw evil will magnify itself with no respite. The drunkard will crave alcohol but never find a drink. The drug addict will crave his next fix but never find one. The adulterer will seek to fulfill his or her lust and find no one to be with. Men and women at their worst face or forced to live with themselves at their worst forever, all because you chose your way, your sin over God's plan, God's plan of salvation and the lordship of Christ. If you're not living for Christ in this life, the only goodness you will ever experience is what little bit you get in this life. If you are a Christian in this life, The only torment you will ever experience is what you deal with in this life. Because once you enter into eternity, it's going to be all one way or another. All eternal bliss or all never-ending torment. Now you may wonder, why was hell even created? Well, we have to look at Matthew chapter 25. God will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan rebelled against God. He convinced one third of the angels in heaven to join him in that rebellion, to go against God. There was a council in the Holy Trinity which found Satan guilty of heavenly treason and blasphemy. And without a struggle, God crushed the rebellion and condemned the rebels to a place created specifically for Satan and his rebellious kindred, and that place is called hell. And because hell was created for spiritual beings, it exists in the spiritual realm. Now, with the understanding that hell was not prepared for us, for human beings, if it wasn't prepared for people, how do people go there? The only way to go to hell is to be a rebel against God. Which involves your choice, your your free will. It's the rebel who says, I don't want to come to God on his terms. And God says, You know what? You don't have to. Did you know God said that? According to Romans chapter 1, you can get to a point in your sin and God will say, God will give them over into the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. God will say, Fine. You don't want to obey me. You don't want to live the way I want you to live. You don't want to love me. Then Romans 1, 24, God says, he'll give you over to your sinful desires. He will give you the desire of your heart. Like when a rebellious child says to his parents, I don't want to live under your rules in your house anymore. And mom and, mom and dad say, all right, then Go. Go. If you choose your way, if you choose your life, your will, rather than Christ's sacrifice, God says, because you choose your sin, rather than choosing my son as your savior, you can have your sin, but you'll have it forever. So hell is a man or woman's choice to be independent from God's rule and Christ forever. That's so why if you go to the back of the, of the book, Revelation chapter 14, it talks about those who choose to worship the beast and those who choose to receive the mark. In other words, you make a choice. You, you choose to worship the beast and take his mark, or you choose to surrender to Christ and God's will, and you will spend eternity with whichever one you choose. There's a decision that's made. It's not God wanting to send people to hell. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear. God desires for all men to be saved. Not only does he desire it, but he's he's provided for it by the atonement of Jesus Christ. But if you choose sin over God's salvation, he'll give you the desire of your heart, which will remove you from him. And in hell you will experience the sight of God that no one on earth has ever seen. We've read some scripture verses about it, but nobody this side of death has ever seen it. Again, William Booth said the best preparation for young ministers is to let them spend five minutes in hell. He said they will come back and be the greatest evangelist the world's ever seen. The redeeming sacrificial death of Jesus Christ freed God up from having to express his wrath toward humanity. Instead, God the Father took out his wrath on Jesus hanging on the cross. The wrath of an almighty God shot down from heaven and engulfed the Son of Jesus hanging on the cross until he had to beg, oh, my Father, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you turned your back on me? The plea of a broken Christ. Imagine that. So you and I don't have to experience the wrath of God. But if you die without Christ, you become subject to God's wrath, something so horrible you could never imagine it, something that even broke Jesus. A sight of God I've never seen, I do not ever want to see. In hell, you will see the just wrath of God forever forever. And people in and out of the church today, a lot of people, they just don't get that. We just don't, don't tell me about that. Now, God is perfectly holy in every aspect of his being. The prophet Habakkuk said he doesn't even want to look at sin. He abhors sin. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And yet, when he looks down upon this world, he sees it all the time, doesn't he? Let me explain it this way. If, if yet this winter we get a snowfall, and thinking you're funny, you throw a snowball and hit my wife in the back of the head, she might tear up and ask why you would do that, and her feelings will be hurt, and maybe you'll be ashamed of yourself. Now, if you throw that snowball and hit me in the back of the head, I'm not going to tear up. And I won't care why you did it. And there very well will be a different response. If you throw that same snowball and hit a policeman in the back of the head, it's going to be way worse for you because you threw it against someone with greater authority. If you take that same size snowball and throw it at the President of the United States, you're liable to get shot. Same size snowball... But the standard of the person you assaulted determines the wrath that will come back at you. Same way with sin. If you do wrong against me, that's one thing. But when you sin against God, that's a whole different ballgame. Because you have assaulted perfect holiness that cannot stand sin. Hurt me, and that's one sinner against another sinner. But when you hurt total, absolute purity, that's different entirely. And offending God cannot be made up by doing good works because the Bible says on your best day, your good works are like filthy rags. Even on your best day, you fall short of making up for your sins against God. And hell exists for those who in their stubbornness refuse to bow to God's authority in their lives and they remain unrepentant. God makes that clear in Romans chapter 2. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentance, he says you are storing up God's wrath against you, and that will be revealed on the day of judgment. Now, we all know people that we think deserve hell. The Hitlers, the child molesters and rapists and mass murderers and those who abort live babies and satanic perverts, yeah, they ought to go to hell. And if you were told for sure that at their death they went straight to hell, you'd probably be okay with that because we see their sins were a certain degree of evil. Yeah, they deserve that, we say, using our standards. But when God uses his standards, looking at the whole world, what's he say? None are righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let me explain it another way. I would bet that most of you are uncomfortable with roaches in your house. Just one person? (laughs) You believe that you and roaches should not coexist. Anybody? Okay. Now, I say, well, roaches have to live somewhere. You don't care. Because something inside you tells you roaches do not belong around you. So you have your house sprayed every month. You've got a can of emergency roach spray under your sink. You will not tolerate it because your nature will not let you tolerate it. God, by his nature, cannot coexist with sin. He can't do it. So God's holiness and our sinfulness pose a big problem. Now back to that roach in your house. You don't care about the size of it either. You don't say, oh, that's a baby roach, just a baby. Don't hurt it. Or, oh, that's a teenage roach. That's a trouble roach right there. Step on that thing. Or, oh, no, that's a full-grown roach. Oh, it's got wings. It's a flying roach. That's the worst kind. It's sophisticated 21st century. That's a millennial roach right there. No, whether it's a baby roach or a mid-sized roach or a flying roach, you feel the same way about them all, don't you? Get them out. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we think sometimes that there are good sinners, mid-sized sinners, and flying sinners. But when a holy God looks at them, he sees them all alike because his holiness demands it. Now, there's a story in Luke chapter 16 about a man, the Bible says, who goes to Hades. Remember, Hades is not hell. Hades is the intermediary state where you wait for eternal It's like county jail where you wait to be sent to maximum security federal prison. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Hades is where the sinner goes when he dies to wait for hell because the Bible says hell, or Hades, will be cast into the lake of fire. And this man in, in this place called Hades where he's being prepped for hell, he lifts up his eyes and he sees Abraham and Lazarus. Now he's experiencing spiritual suffering right then because he's been separated from all of God's goodness and mercy. All, everything about God has been removed, and all you will get in hell is God's wrath, right? And this man in Hades could see those who were safe in God's presence. But he couldn't get there. Now that's spiritual suffering. When you see your family and your friends, people you remember from church, people you love, now they're over there safe, blessed in the presence of Christ, and you know you will never be with them again. And there's a mental component of hell. Verse 25... Abraham replied, son, remember in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. God says, remember. You know what? There's no dementia in hell. If you go to that awful place, you will remember every church service, every sermon, every song of invitation, every plea from those who loved you. You'll remember this service today. You will have a vivid memory of every opportunity you had to receive Christ, but you turned away. And it will gnaw at you like a worm gnaws at dead flesh. And then there will be relational suffering in hell. He said, I beg you, send Lazarus to my family. I have five brothers. Let him warn them. I don't want them to come to this place of torment. You've heard people talk like, well, Like hell's going to be a party. Well, if I go to hell, I'll have a lot of friends there. No, no. This guy says, warn them not to come here. I don't want them here. I will hate them if they come here. And they will hate me when they get here. Why? Because everything of God has been removed. There's no love. In the absence of all all love, there remains only hatred. Now, there are people in this world that I don't like. And they don't like me. I could probably say that about the church, let alone the world. And in some cases, we really don't want to be around each other. And when we have to be around each other, it's very uncomfortable. In hell, you will have pure hatred for everyone there. And they will have pure hatred for you. But you'll be with each other forever. Forever their worst sinfulness and your worst evil clashing with each other, and there's no place to get away from each other. There's environmental suffering, heaven's gonna be beautiful sunshine, eternal day, hell will be darkness, blackest night, all night the Bible calls it outer darkness. But the worst of it all is that it's eternal. Because from the moment of your conception When God breathed life into your mother's womb, it was eternal life that comprises your spiritual being. So even in hell, you can't die because your spirit is God-designed to exist forever. You choose where you are, but you were designed to exist forever, and that fact alone ought to give every one of us pause. There is no greater issue for any of us to consider than eternity. You say, well, I believe this life is it. I don't believe in eternity. What are you doing here? You can walk out and never come back. You'll probably wind up in eternity as hell anyway. But at least you won't expect it. Until that first moment after death when two black-winged angels are standing at the foot of your bed to escort you there. But you know what? I think everybody in this room today believes in eternity. So ultimately, nothing else matters, does it? As much as where you're going to spend eternity. If you grew up around the church, you probably memorized John chapter 3, verse 16. But what about verse 18? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. It's your choice. God's not choosing for you. You weren't predestined to go one place or the other. God doesn't want anyone to go there. He made that very clear. It's your choice. Here's another quote that, I, that was so strong. Those who go to heaven ride on a pass and enter into blessings that they never earned, amen? But all who go to hell will have paid their own way. The Bible says Hades will be cast into a lake of fire. In San Francisco Bay, there's a place called Alcatraz. It was closed in 1963. Alcatraz was known for the one prison that you could never escape from because even if you got out of your cell and even if you got out of the prison itself, You couldn't get to the mainland because San Francisco Bay was shark-infested and had horrible currents. You'd drown or be eaten. So you could see the lights of San Francisco, but you could never get there. Hades, the waiting room of hell, will be dumped into the middle of the lake of fire, which there's no escaping unless you escape now. Have you ever been in a large store And a child wanders away from its mother. And over a loudspeaker, you hear, ladies and gentlemen, we have a lost child. What happens? Immediately, everyone stops shopping, and they start looking up and down the aisles for a lost child. That's what I'm doing this morning. That's what I'm doing this morning. I'm going to open the altar in just a moment. Before I do that, I have four people who are going to come and help me. Now, they would come now and take their positions. That would be great. Karen and Pastor Philip, Pastor Sam and Crystal, stand on the inside of the altar, please, Sam. You see, I'm not just going to open the altars. I want these altars to be anointed in prayer before you ever come. Now, I have two final thoughts. For those of us who are here this morning, remember in Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my father. Someone tried to explain what Jesus meant in Matthew seven. And he said this, multitudes of people Who expect to go to heaven will in fact go to a hell of torment. Thousands of good people, moral people, church members, prophets, priests, preachers, will find themselves lost when they expected that they were saved. They will find themselves condemned when they expected approval. They will find themselves cast out when they expected to be received. I think C.S. Lewis coined it the best way. He said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signpost. Would you stand with me? He's saying, you just coast in life. It's very easy for us in the church to drift spiritually, sometimes for years. Unimpassioned, very reserved, lukewarm not loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet believing that God, rather than spewing out the lukewarm, which the Bible says he will do, we believe that he's just going to welcome us all, whoever we are in the church. And so the altar is open, first of all, for you this morning, doesn't matter who you are, but if you have any doubts, if you lack any assurance that you know you're going to heaven, if your life has not reflected absolute total love for Christ, and you have a doubt, I invite you to come and just clear everything up between you and God at one of these altars this morning. Anyone else? You just want to be sure. This is not something about which you want to have any doubt. Amen. Try me, oh. oh. Try me, oh Amen. Anyone else? Anyone else? Time to be absolutely sure. my final thought. Scott, bring the music down a little bit, would you please? I read this quote from a 19th century preacher. And he said this. Could we put that that quote up from Spurgeon, please? Christy. He said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees. And I would say for those of you who have a child or a spouse, a brother or a sister, a grandchild or a dear friend who have chosen not to live their lives according to biblical truth. I refer back to how we started this message from Penn Jillette. If you really believe in hell, how much do you have to hate someone not to warn them? We assume they know how we feel, and they assume we're praying about them. You say, Pastor... They've hurt us so many times before, and we'll only wind up frustrating them and frustrating ourselves, or worse, maybe causing a rift between us. And I don't want a rift, and I suggest that there is already a rift between the saved and the lost, a rift which can only be bridged by consistent, prayerful intercession, passionate and opportunistic dialogue. Whenever God opens that door, you speak. And so this morning, if you have someone like that, I want you to lay aside your assumptions and refuse to be timid when it comes to your heartbreak over their souls and never, ever stop trying to bring them back into the fold. If someone you love is to be damned, I pray you have at least this consolation. They will not be damned because you didn't warn them. They will not be lost because you stopped weeping over them. And they will not be lost because you stopped praying for them. And so if there's someone like that for you to come and pray for, would you come? Would you come and pray for them this morning? because you love them and they will not be lost because I didn't I didn't pray they won't be lost because I didn't talk to them about hell I don't care if it upsets them I won't stand by and watch them be lost Anyone else want to come and pray? Let's all bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, we come to the end of a service that has been, I know it's been very heavy, Lord, and I know it's not been easy for these folks to listen to, but God, it's true. You gave us this warning over and over in your holy word and we cannot behave as though it's not important. For these who came this morning, I just wanted to clear things up and make sure there's nothing between them and God, that they are saved and they are ready to go to heaven. I thank you, Lord, that you hear their prayers, If we are faithful and just to confess our sins. God, you will forgive. I thank you, God, for answering that prayer. I thank you for assurance and peace that comes into our hearts when we know that we know that God is my Savior and I am His. But for these, Lord, who've come now to pray for a son or a daughter, for a sister or brother, a grandchild, a spouse, who for whatever reason, they've just gone the opposite direction. They've walked away from everything we believe. They don't accept our, 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 our appeals to the Bible. They just seem to not even hear us anymore. God. If they be lost, may they be lost with us, with our arms wrapped around their knees, begging them not to be lost. Hear the prayers coming from the hearts of these who are here this morning. Infuse them with your love for their loved one. And may they never see them as anything but a spiritual child who needs to come home to a loving God. Thank you, Lord, for searching hearts and opening our hearts to your love and grace today. And help us to be your ambassadors to reach the world that needs the Christ, that they would be saved. And this we pray. In Jesus, our Savior's holy name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.